So my name is Ken Pretty, and this session is Introduction to Transitional Pastoral Ministry. So let me uh, let me find out who you guys are, and we'll we'll go to work now. Bill, I've known for a long time, but share with us who you are and what you're up to, Bill. My name is Bill Kelly. I'm pastor at Upper Rock River Presbyterian Church in Parksburg, Pennsylvania, a small town about an hour west of Philadelphia. Um, I just turned 65. Retirement is still off in the distance somewhere. And uh, I've also worked with our Presbytery's church development team. So uh, being able to help churches recommending transitional pastors and uh, it's just uh, a neat ministry that I always feel like I can learn more about so it's good okay and Bill also works with the Go Center as the representative uh, for Presbytery of the East with the Go Center and we just recently started with a, an actual contract with Presbytery of the East to do a few things. So uh, that's starting to starting to unfold. All right. And so your name is? Ramona Spillman. I'm a, a pastor at Cherry Hills Community Church here in Denver. And um, this has just been something that's always interested me. Mm -hmm. Both in both in the why or why not of having transitional pastors as well as I've just always wondered if one day I might try something like that. Okay. But it's, but it's not something pressing. It's just something that's yeah. interesting. Well, I think it's going to be uh, more and more relevant over time. You know, statistics are showing that, uh, you know, this, this wave of baby boomer pastors is hitting retirement age. And, uh, you know, pastors in next generations are coming in at much lower volume you know so there's going to be some gaps there a lot of churches are going to need pastors of course what we'll be talking about today a little bit is the, the strategic relevance of a transitional pastor as opposed to simply you know babysitting the pulpit for, you know waiting for the next person to arrive so, so you're close by. What part of town are you in? Highlands Ranch, south of here. Okay. So, southwest a little bit. Yeah. Southwest, okay. Yeah. I'm Jerry Van Ocken, uh pastor in, uh, at First EPC in Kokomo, Indiana. Kokomo, Indiana. I've actually been there. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> what's a, what's a... City of First. Yeah. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. It's the, where the first automobile in the United States was. Uh, Is that right? Yeah. Among other things. I was. Uh, I did a lot of work for three or four years for the Northwest Indiana District of the Church of the Nazarene. Okay. Now they're they're based in Valparaiso, but there was a church over in Kokomo that hosted first some some events. When, when were you doing that? Question? This would have been in the early 2000s. Okay. 0305, something like that, I'm thinking. Yeah. I Naz is a big church. They more than doubled their footprint, I think, right around that time. They is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I also was involved with the missionary church for a number of years, and their headquarters is in Fort Wayne. Okay. 
So, yep. Okay. Well, um, you've got the you got the manual there. Uh, so uh, obviously, with with just a few of us here, uh, I kind of wish I had had a stool up here. I'm just gonna make some room for myself here. If you put that on the platform, it's on those. Stools. Yeah, I thought about that. We don't feel like you're looking down on it. <laughs> I think uh, I think I'm gonna do this. Yeah, I need to get my little clicker. Um, advance the slide. You know, I guess uh, in terms of the EPC, some of you might have known uh, Pastor Bob Hopper. Either of you guys, I know Bill, you, you probably were aware. Yeah, I didn't get to meet him once. Yeah. Bob Hopper is, uh, was a long-standing EPC pastor. He, he did a lot of personal transitional ministry and developed a, a training program. Uh, and he was, it was more or less a freelance thing. Uh, it wasn't like a, an official EPC enterprise, but uh, he was kind of the go-to guy when it came to training transitional pastors. And Bob Stoffer, who works with us at the Go Center, was uh, sort of his right-hand man. And the two of them were doing this training that Bob is now doing across the hall this afternoon. Bob Stoffer, that is. And... Uh, but I guess it's been, what, two summers ago, maybe three even, Bob Hopper just uh, suddenly passed away. And uh, by that time, Bob Stauffer was really well acquainted with his material. And uh, we wanted to keep, keep that going. And so the Go Center became sort of the custodian of, of that ministry. So we have, over the last two years, we have been gradually adopting uh, some of Bob Hopper's materials, uh, blending them in with some of our own materials along with perspectives from others that we encounter. So, you know, it's, it's still kind of a work in progress, but we, we are recognizing that the, the need, in this case for the EPC, to have this ministry in place is getting ever more significant. And it seems to be gaining traction as a, as a concept within uh, a number of our presbyteries. So, you know, I'll, what I'll be sharing with you this afternoon is <clears throat> sort of the, the, the overview of, of what this is looking like. Uh, Part of the challenge is that transitional ministry, utilizing the, the definitions that we're using, is not a super well-known thing. It's not a fully embraced thing. Uh, people are more uh, aware of the idea of, say, an interim pastor uh, or pulpit supply. And where we're wanting to go is to say, well, you know what, when a church goes through 
a pastoral transition, it's a great opportunity to do something strategic and to uh, leverage that opportunity to actually accomplish something, not just sort of, you know, keep the seat warm until the next pastor comes in. That's part of it. Another part of it is uh, the tendency among uh, churches when, when they have a pastor who's leaving, of course, the immediate thought is who's next. And their tendency is to want to jump into, you know, let's put a search committee. And the, the goal is let's, let's fill this vacancy as quickly as we possibly can. Um, so uh, let's just say oftentimes uh, the wrong candidate is selected. You know, the church doesn't really know the candidate. The candidate doesn't know the church. The church doesn't really know itself, for that matter. So, uh, as Bob was, was explaining this morning uh, in the training group, he said, you know, the tendency is to sort of frantically push the pace ahead when what we should be doing is saying, slow down, pause, let's, let's grab this moment as an opportunity to do something very intentional and make sure that the incoming pastor is going to be the right person for the church, the church the right church for the pastor, etc., etc. So that's kind of what we're shooting for is seeing pastoral transition as an opportunity to uh, refocus ministry, reset, re-identify the church, and make a really wise, reasoned, unrushed selection for a new pastor. So, um, this first couple pages, page, uh, page three and four, uh, this is a document that the Presbytery of the Alleghenies uses. That Presbytery is more or less in the lead um, when it comes to transitional ministry. Um, I'm, I don't know if Bob Hopper was actually in Alleghenies or not, but Bob Stauffer is, is very much uh, in the leadership of that presbytery. And they've got something like 14 active transitional pastors in the presbytery now. And uh, so they're well ahead of the learning curve on this. So uh, much of what we are bringing to the table these days is, uh, is following their lead but uh, the idea of the case for a transitional pastor, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of a uh, promotional effort that has to go into this. You know, this is not one of those standard operating procedure things for most presbyteries. So presbyteries sometimes have to be sold on the idea 
local congregations need to be sold. Uh, it's it's just not an a an often enough done thing that people are very familiar with it. They they don't they typically don't understand all the ramifications. Okay, they just think that they're getting a fill-in pastor till they get the next pastor. So what this couple pages does, it sort of lays out that groundwork. Uh, the focus is on the, the why, who, and the how. Why should we have a transitional pastor? Uh, who specifically should serve in this role? And, and how, does, how does that season of transitional pastoring work? Uh, so, you know, these couple pages give some summary statements about how all that goes together. Um, let me see what's on this screen here. Yeah, okay, we're doing pretty good so far. Some of the, some of the statistics there uh, just kind of show you, according to people that, that do these analyses, um, Tom Rainer in particular is citing 86% of American churches are in plateau and decline. Now, when I first got started in, in this kind of ministry back in the 80s and 90s, you know, the word back then was that over 80% uh, of American Protestant churches are in, are in decline or in plateau. And so, despite huge efforts these days in church planting, um, that stat isn't moving. <laughs> if it's moving at all, it's, it, it's moving in the wrong direction. Um, uh, but, in, you know, it's one of the things that, that starts to tell us that, I mean, think about it this way. If that's true, that 8 out of 10 churches are in plateau and decline, then transitional pastors are by and large going to be stepping into churches that are in plateau and decline. Uh, so so there, uh, there's sort of a, a, a double discipline going on here. We need to be thinking both in terms of revitalization as well as transitional pastoring as a category. You know, what does the transitional pastor do? Well, he or she largely uh, takes the reins of a plateaued or declining church. So, you know, the idea of just treading water until a, a next pastor comes doesn't really help the church, nor does it help the community that the church serves. So we're, we're looking for a, a holistic development here where we've got presbyteries that understand the dynamics that are promoting transitional ministry. We've got trained transitional pastors that know the landscape, know what to do with it. We've got local churches that are uh, you know, embracing bringing in a transitional pastor, as well as candidates that are going to vie for 
being the next pastor who understand the dynamics and come in uh, acclimated uh, to revitalization concepts so that you know whatever ground the church might gain during the transitional period that that just doesn't disappear when the new pastor arrives so as you think about that whole scenario what do you think would be some of the causes for not you know status quo is we lost our pastor we need a new pastor let's 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 fill the pulpit as best we can put a search team together and get get a new pastor as soon as possible uh, weighing those two scenarios the you know uh, jump to the next pastor as quickly as possible versus let's pause and utilize this transitional period strategically. What do you see as kind of pros and cons of those two scenarios? Well, certainly panic that it won't work would cause people to want to get a new pastor in there. I mean, they yeah. would, a fear, basically. Um, the, pro, the pros are obvious, I, I would bet. I haven't seen your statistics, but I bet it shows when you have a transit, good transitional pastor to have old church. But, um, but uh, I can see, even when you're describing the scenario, I'm picturing my elder, the elder board we have at church. I'm, right. I'm just seeing the elevation of, of uh, blood pressure. And right. <laughs> so, you know, but, yeah. Well, you know, let's, let's phrase it a different way. Why, why is it that the default position is let's get a new pastor in here as fast as we can. What, what, what do leaders think that that's accomplishing? Maintaining the status quo. Okay, it's, it's not losing. People. It has the appearance of yeah. safety or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's still not even fear of the unknown. Yeah, fear of the unknown. You know, there's also, you know, so many uh, in the EPC, so many of our churches are part of what I call the great migration of the PCUSA. There's this residue. Uh, you know, when I was in the PCUSA, uh, I didn't feel like I could trust my presbytery. And if this is going to be a presbytery undertaking of some kind, how can I trust that to be in, in our best interest? And, you know, but, you know, on a, you know, setting aside the politics of it, I think part of it is um, many, many churches don't actually have an actual vision uh, that's active. Their expectation is when you hire a pastor, you hire a vision. So rather than our developing a vision and securing a pastor that's compatible with that, who can lead that vision, we just leave the concept of vision vacant 
and go with the kind of the what we call the Moses syndrome. You know, let, once Moses gets back from the down from the mountain, we'll know what to do. You know, and so that's that I think pushes leadership to say, you know, yeah, we really are treading water till we get another pastor because when the pastor comes, that person it will bring the. The, the vision and the strategy. The problem with that mindset is that if you're relying on an incoming pastor to be the sort of the, the craftsman of the vision, it's going to be when, whenever that pastor leaves, the vision goes with him. You know, and so what I like to encourage is let's spend some time trying to discern what God's vision for our church is. Let's make sure that we're dialed in and let's make sure that the incoming pastor's dialed in. And when a pastor comes, we all know, even if it's a 30-year tenure, which is increasingly rare, Sooner or later, that pastor is going to be gone. But, you know, God's interest in our church will never be gone. So the more that we can have a, a more, I don't know, corporate congregational identity and vision, then we don't have to ping pong back and forth from one pastor to the next to the next. And, you know, these days... Pastoral tenures of three, four, five years are more the norm. So what are you going to do? Overhaul the vision? Every time, every time you have a pastoral change. So those are the kinds of things that are at stake. Um, if you look over on page five, um, let me put these up here. Steps, you know, steps for pastoral transition. Now, again, this is something that has been developed through the Presbytery of the Alleghenies. So, you know, it's not a denominational policy per se. Uh, and, you know, one of, the, one of the things about EPC culture is uh, it's rather fierce, fiercely um, independent at both the Presbytery and local church level. There's a lot of autonomy for good and or ill sometimes. And so uh, nothing is going to be prescribed from on high in terms of, you know, fine print. But we're finding Alleghenies to be a, uh, a model that's working. So we, we, we're using that as a point of reference. So here's some of the things that you see uh, in the mix. Uh, phase one, self-assessment. Self-assessment of leadership health, self-assessment of congregational health. Um, one of the things that we want to see happen in a transitional period is for the church to undergo self-assessment. Now, the, the fact that it's self-assessment is a very big deal. Uh, what we've discovered is that when you bring in 
people from outside to do assessments. Uh, very often this leads to something of an adversarial relationship between the assessor and the assessees. And, uh, you know, I ran into this myself. When, when I first left the pastorate, actually it was before I left the pastorate, but I was, I was asked to do some consultation. Uh, my story is that I, uh, I was involved in planting a couple of churches, and then uh, this is another denomination. And then uh, there was this 87-year-old church that had declined down to 13 people. And um, the, the, the idea of it was, let's put a church planter with this group of 13 and declare them to be the core of a new church and start all over. Okay, so that's kind of what we did. Only I found as a planter that these 13 people were, were not descriptive of an entrepreneurial startup core group. They were the remnant of an almost dead church. And uh, wonderful people, but just, you know, emotionally, practically, uh, not dialed in to, to a startup venture. So, uh, you know, I had to do quite a bit of, of retooling, relearning, how to do ministry. But uh, the thing is, by the grace of God, uh, things did start to turn around. Ultimately, the church began to do quite well. Um, part of the problem with this church well, uh, was that the community where the church was located had transitioned over a period of about 15 years to being almost 100% Hispanic. And the church made zero adjustment. So you've got this shrinking Caucasian church in the middle of this exploding Hispanic community. <laughs> so, you know, before I even got there, uh, they had left their property and buildings, leased them to a Hispanic church, and just moved into a convenient storefront up the street to have a place to meet. But nothing strategic was happening. No. They hadn't had a pastor in three years. No, one, no visitors ever came. No one could recall the last time uh, they'd seen a profession of faith. It was just 13 people basically taking care of each other and hoping that somewhere, somehow, God would do something that would turn it around. And so, uh, upon my arrival... What we, what we realized we had to do was we had to relocate. You know, this little storefront they were meeting in was, was worthless strategically. The community was Hispanic. We were not. So we had to uh, do a little investigation and found a place that we thought would be a better fit where we could connect with the current demographic and uh you mean physically move physically move okay yeah and it was kind of interesting you know uh one of the things that i'd like to emphasize is that 
you know, when you look at you look at the books of, of Ezra, Nehemiah, others of the of the Old Testament figures, you know, a lot of these people were first of all, they were serving God while in exile. A whole lot of them. Uh, you know, they were in hostile terrain in unfriendly cultures, unfriendly toward toward their religious faith. And yet they managed to be faithful and do some amazing things. Well, one of the phrases that you see often in Ezra and Nehemiah is the phrase, the hand of the Lord was upon them. Well, there's no substitute for the hand of the Lord. You know, that's, that's not just like icing on the cake. That's the cake. <laughs> you know, um, so aside from the nuts and bolts, it, it's, it's, a, it's a spiritual enterprise that we're about. And what we're asking for is we're asking for the hand of God uh, to be upon this congregation and to be upon this transitional pastor and to be upon the search process and the selection of the incoming pastor. You know, we want God's blessing in all of this. Um, and so I, I, when I'm working with churches, I'm, I'm always asking, uh, talk to me about where you see the hand of God in, in the church. Uh, what, what's happening here that is unmistakably a God thing that you couldn't have, you couldn't have just done this in your own strength. And that tells me a couple of things. One is when they have solid responses to that question, it gives me a sense of, okay, there's, there's some, some degree of spiritual health here uh, and God's blessing is upon them. But there are other times when, quite frankly, nothing is forthcoming. You can't find the hand of God on this church, which leads you down a, another set of questions like, well, why not? What, why wouldn't God be blessing this church? And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I have uncovered over the years is that if you're dealing with a, pros, a, a church that is well down the backside of the life cycle, there is, a, there is often a, a relationship between unresolved sin in the camp and the fact that God's blessing is not on His people. And I, I refer to this as the Achan principle from Joshua 7. You know, Achan stole the sacred things for himself and the blessing of God was lifted. And so Israel, having just knocked off Jericho, the unconquerable city, now gets driven back by this tiny town called Ai. You know, what's happened between Jericho and Ai? Well, what's happened is the blessing of God has been lifted. Why? Well, I mean, you can't make God lift his blessing, but God is his prerogative. Seems that he will do so if his holiness has been violated in some way. 
And uh, frequently when you go into a church that's struggling with decline, there's some kind of internal unresolved issue. Uh, you know, families not speaking, leaders inappropriately wielding authority, uh, misuse of funding, uh, and worse. Sometimes it's what I call a, a sin event, uh, something very specific. Other times it might be something more um, more systemic, like a, a prejudicial attitude uh, that, that comes from the congregation toward the surrounding community. You know, one of the things that happens, well, see, what happens in a, in a community very often is the demographics of the community tend to change much quicker than the demographics of the congregation. Okay, you've got, you've got a, a particular, you know, the closer you get to the, to uh, dense populations, the more this tends to be true. You have a church that's kind of in, a, in the city or maybe midtown. That church was established X number of years ago and the residents of that community were of a certain demographic slice. Well, over time, uh, that community has started to transition demographically, and most often, it's kind of a negative demographic in that things, socioeconomic has gone down, education has gone down, there's been a change in, uh, in ethnic makeup. Meanwhile, the church congregation, uh, you know, you've got people that used to live around the church that have moved elsewhere, but they still commute in. So they're now living somewhere else, but this is their church. But the demographics of the congregation are not matching up with the demographics of the community. And, you know, if the more severe that becomes, the wider the cultural gap, okay? And so, you know, sometimes, like for example, I was working with a church that, that fits that description really well. Inner city church, thriving with five, six, seven hundred people back in its day, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, but now, like 65 people on a Sunday. So I'm working with this group and I'm talking with them about dialing into the community and becoming relevant in the community and meeting the needs of the community, yada, yada, yada. And this, uh, this woman says to me, she says, well, you know, even if we could reach these people, they could never financially support our church. Um, and, and I mean, and she wasn't like the wicked witch of the West. She was just a, a typical church lady, you know. But in her mind, she she wasn't seeing this as like uh, I don't know. Of course, I'm reading this as a highly prejudicial statement, almost like, well, if they can't support our church financially, why bother? You know, but for her, it was just a pragmatic thing. 
Like, what if we did pour ourselves into reaching our immediate community? Uh, we'd be pouring resources into something that wasn't going to give us a return on that investment. The business mentality. Yeah. You see, here, here's another, a similar kind of thing. Another, another church similar in, in type. They decide, well, we're, we're not able to draw new people from the community in on a Sunday morning. But this community is loaded with kids. And a lot of these kids are coming from pretty rough homes, a lot of, a lot of single parent homes. So they start up this uh, Wednesday night thing for kids in the neighborhood. And uh, word gets around. So people are bringing their kids. This thing is growing. So over a period of, of a number of months, they've got over 100 kids coming in Wednesday night, outnumbering Sunday morning attendance. Okay? But what's happening is people are dropping their kids off at the church, almost like a babysitting service. And these kids aren't the best uh, behaved. So they're running in the halls, they're messing the bathrooms up. The language is rather colorful. Okay, so after, after a while, uh, the custodial staff starts to complain. You know, every Thursday when we come in here, the building is a wreck. And, you know, it, it kind of followed that, that tenor over a few months. And so they ended up canceling the Wednesday night thing because it was too much trouble. And what's our return on investment? So, you know, you run, in, you run into these, these kinds of things. So... You know, when you're, when you're going in uh, in a transitional way, uh, you want to be bringing in some kind, of, some kind of positive flavor. Now, in our church, it took us about seven months um, to locate the new place, get on a waiting list to rent a school. They have a place to meet. But about seven months after I arrived, we were able to start services in the new area. So I was, uh, you know, my first year was largely just kind of closing, closing down operations at the old place and ramping up at the new place. So from that point until I left that church was, was a little over six years. But, uh, you know, when I left the church, uh, it, was, it was a church of about 350. Uh, we had seen a little over 100 people come in by way of profession of faith. We had seen uh, our budget grow to about just under half a million dollars a year. We had staff in place, leaders in place. A uh, lot of ministry going on in the community. We were heavily involved with planting churches in uh, northern Mexico through the Nogales border crossing. 
so you know all in all it, it was a it was a, a, a pretty solid experience so uh, that's when people started you know people started asking how do, how do you do this well getting back to the idea of assessment um, once our church started to gain traction people sort of wanted to know how are you doing that could you give us some pointers well uh, how about could you come in and do a more thorough kind of consultation okay so I just knew instinctively what we did in the world of planting was when you put a church planter assessment with church planter training and church planter coaching you get better church plants so we thought well what if we brought those components into revitalization so we're going to assess the church revitalization pastor but we also want to assess the church and we want to put training and coaching in place and those sorts of things well what I discovered was that the the leading protocol for consulting with churches was for the consultant to go in and do uh, an assessment that seemed to be the norm and by that time I had gotten to know some some leading people around the country guys like like Gary McIntosh I don't know if you know that name uh, out of Talbert Seminary um, revitalization specialist written a ton of books and whatnot and a few other people so I thought okay I'm gonna do I'm gonna do what those guys do so I go in and I I conduct this assessment you know I'm meeting with all the staff one-on-one -on -one. I'm asking questions I'm making notes I'm sitting in on meetings I'm going to worship services uh, spending a lot of time on site and uh, so I come up with my report these are my findings and in light of my findings these are my recommendations well what I met with was uh, stern resistance to my findings you know, it's like no, 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 Ken. Uh, no, I think you, I think you missed that. That's not who we are at all. You know, and then of course, they weren't really interested in any of my recommendations because my findings were faulty. So you know, I did this a couple of times, and then I called around to these same people I had talked with before. I said, let me, let me ask you something. I said, when you deliver these consultant reports with your findings and your recommendations how does that go over with uh, with church leaders and they were like well you know sometimes uh, you know they're fairly receptive but we do run into a lot of resistance and oftentimes uh, the churches don't really want to go any further I'm like, okay, let me, let me think about this for a minute. So I do all this work. I go somewhere on site for days and days and days, write up these lengthy reports, make a report, and then they don't listen. So 
I've just wasted all kinds of my time. They've wasted their money. How does this make sense? So I decided what needs to happen here. Assessment is important, but who does the assessment is even more important. So what we are going to be encouraging is self-assessment. We provide tools, opportunities for church leaders to do a self-assessment. So the idea is you guys do this assessment and then come to us with your findings. And based on your findings about yourself, we can then make some recommendations. Well, that, that process has proved exponentially more effective. Because, you know, the key ingredient uh, in, in, a ch in a church receiving uh, input, in this case from a transitional pastor, they've really got to own the reality of what's happening at their church. They can't rely on the perspective of the, quote, outsider that comes in. Okay? So, you know, one of, one of the first things you're going to want to do in this role of transitional pastor is help the church with a self-assessment. Now, um, let, me, uh, let me fast forward a moment. Not sure. Here, no, not quite. I'm not finding it. We'll come across it. Here's the deal. In an ideal scenario, the presbytery has bought in to transitional pastor ministry. And so you really have three parties involved in this. You've got the, the presbytery, you've got the transitional church, and you've got the transitional pastor. You see, a lot of this assessment kind of stuff, this could be done before the transitional pastor comes on scene. If the presbytery through, like, say, the church development committee or whatever, whatever its comparable committee might be, um, some of this legwork can be done before the fact and the stage can be set for the incoming transitional pastor. And before we get away from this, uh, this topic, getting back to the, the hand of the Lord, um, I'll just give you one example of this. You know, my wife and I move out to Phoenix with our four kids to take on this uh, calling. And uh, the group, we, we knew already that relocation was going to be uh, part of the deal, you know, moving the church to another location. But we just assumed that the 13 people who were the church who lived in Phoenix and had lived in Phoenix for a lot of years, that they would be the ones to say, I think we should move over here. But no, their deal was, 
You know, Ken, we, we want you to decide where we move the church. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know Phoenix. I don't know the communities. You know, I don't know how this works. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, Ken, that's a, that's, we've decided, you know, we want you, you to do this. Okay, fine. Well, I don't know if you know anything about Phoenix, but Phoenix is like a gazillion square miles of beige stucco with red tile. Okay? I mean, one, one community looks like another, looks like another, looks like another for miles and miles and miles and miles. And we have no point of reference. So we pile in the van. We have this, this gentleman named Kelvin and his wife, Grace. The, Kelvin's driving, and my wife, Sharon, and I, we're in the back. We're going to tour Phoenix. Now, we're praying, like, God, do something. You know, help. You know, give us a hint. Put a big check mark or something. So we start weaving our way through northeast Phoenix, Scottsdale, Fountain Valley, uh, and we cross over to the northwest, Peoria, Glendale. And, you know, we're just driving around. And, I mean, it's like, it's all a blur. You know, I'm sensing nothing. But, uh, well, I'll go to the board here. I'll show you how this works. Um, so, they're having too much fun over there. Yeah. All right. This is dry erase, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so, all right. Let me show you. Okay. We'll, we'll draw a little map here. Here's Los Angeles. Okay. Heading east on Interstate 10. You cross the Arizona border. You come on over. It dips down like this. Uh, and it... it it, it heads east again, and right here, there's this uh, little, tiny, little mountain thing they call the South Mountain Preserve. It's a state-owned property. Uh, Interstate 10 dips down and goes straight down to Tucson, heads east all the way to Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, now Phoenix proper is in here. But, uh, so, you know, we looking over here in northeast, came over to northwest. Now we're riding down here. We come around here and we whip around South Mountain Preserve. And there are four exits off the freeway before you hit a line. And, and south of this line is Indian Reservation, which is federal property. Okay. This is Interstate 10. Well, we come around this little uh, mountain thing and we pull off on Elliott Road and drive into this area. This is called Ahwatukee. Uh It's Ahwatukee Foothills. And uh, there, it's about probably five miles north to south. And from here to here, it's about 15 miles. Now, there's no way in and out of this area 
except these four roads. You can't drive south into the Indian Reservation. To get to the reservation, you have to go down Interstate 10 and come over. You can't drive. There's no roads that go through South Mountain Preserve. Uh, and so we, we pull over into this area. And um, all I can tell you is that something felt different. It looked exactly the same as everything else. But something sort of just perked up. So I'm feeling what I'm feeling. And I turned to my wife and I was going to say something. But I never got it out. You know, I turned and she's looking at me and she says, this is it. I said, this is what? She said, this is, this is where we're supposed to bring the church. How do you know that? I don't know how I know that. I just know that. Okay, fine. So I, uh, I asked Kelvin, I said, hey, could you pull over? Find, find me somewhere I can get a little map of this area. So we, we buy this little cartoon version map, you know, and I'm spread this thing out and I'm looking at it. And, you know, in my mind's eye, I, I'm almost seeing it like in three dimensions. Uh, and I'm, I'm seeing people coming out of houses to, to go to church. So we jump in the car. I said, take me to find the local high school. So we found the high school, Mountain Point High School. So I get out of the car. I walk out onto the athletic field. And again, in my mind's eye, I'm, I'm seeing my son playing soccer on this field. And, you know, it's like, hmm. So we, we drove all around this area. And, you know, ultimately this thing makes a gigantic triangle. Okay. So, and it's, you know, it's the, the Awatuki foothills. I assume Awatuki is an Indian word meaning something like, man, it's hot out here. Okay. All right. So that night we're meeting with, uh, with the group and they're wanting to get a report. So what do you think? And my wife says, well, we found this one area that wasn't really any different than any other area. It just felt different. What area was that? And you know, she says, uh, I don't know. It's some, so it starts with an A. It's a really long Indian word. And uh, Kelvin said, Awatuki. Well, when he says this, Everybody in the room kind of like cutting little glances at each other, like, like they know something we don't know. Like, okay, interesting. Well, what I learned later is that when this church began its, its super fast descent, the pastor at the time, decided we need a new location. So he goes to 
In this case, it wasn't a presbytery. It was called a district. The regional group was a district. He goes to the district and he says, um, I think we've outlived our usefulness in this community. Uh, we're thinking about relocating. What do you guys think? And what those guys thought was, well, you're really talking about, you know, when you transplant a church, it's almost like a church plant. And so if you're going to do this, or the church is going to do this, we need to make sure that, that you're wired for being a church planter. So they ran him through an assessment process, and he did not assess well as a planter. So the district said, you know, in truth, if you really want to relocate, the way this should be handled is you should resign and you should find a call somewhere else and let us bring a planter in here. And he's like, wait a minute, this was my idea. This whole thing was my brainchild and now I'm losing my job? I don't think so. So they decided on their own, forget the district, we're going to do this anyway. So they shut down operation at the building and tried to start at another location. What was that location? Ahwatukee. Of all the hundreds of square miles of Phoenix, Arizona, the same community. And they, they held meetings for like two months at uh, the multi-purpose room at Centennial Middle School. Well, it went nowhere. They had to shut down. Things got really, really rough. Pastor ended up leaving his wife, leaving the ministry. The whole thing unraveled. So that's when the group goes back up to the old property, leases it out to a Hispanic church, and rents a little storefront where they've been for two years. Okay, so we come rolling in and say, well, you know, we, we kind of felt something special about Ahwatukee. Really? Okay, so we go to Ahwatukee. We go to the school district. We're looking for a place to meet. They say, well, all the schools are taken. But the deal is, in this area, schools were limited, uh, churches were limited to two years' use of a school. So what was happening is a lot of churches were trying to get into this area, but they'd get to the two-year mark and weren't far enough along to, to buy property and put a building up, so they'd go under, or they'd leave the area and go somewhere else. So we go on a list. You know, We're at the bottom of the list of, we'd like to have a school in Awatugi. So you know, seven months later, I get a call from the school district a school has opened up, and you can have it as of February 1994. I said, okay, great. And I said, which school? Centennial Middle School. It's like, wait a minute. All right, so there's one more piece to this puzzle. So we start holding services in, uh, at Centennial Middle School. Well... 
the Hispanic church that leased our property started to do pretty well. They really wanted to buy the property, but they didn't have money. Uh, so we worked out a deal with them to take, they paid us 50% and we took 50% back as a second mortgage with no payments for long enough for them to figure out how to do it, okay? So to their credit, this little core group, I mean, there was an offer on the table from a developer, 30-day escrow, cash on the barrel, asking price. But they said, no, this is God's footprint. So even though it'd be nice to have that money right now, it's more important that, that there be a gospel presence here. So they end up buying the property. So about a year later, the pastor calls me and he says, uh, he says, Ken, we're, we're cleaning out the attic area. He says, a bunch of stuff up there that belongs to your church. You know, old choir robes and whatever. And he said, if you don't want it, fine. We'll, we'll just haul it to the dump. But if you do want anything, you need to get it by such and such date or it's going to be gone. So we went up there one Saturday with about six of us. And we're just going to comb through the attic and see if there's anything to, to salvage. So they've got a, a few of these four drawer cabinets, file cabinets, stacks of papers on top. So I go over there and I'm just kind of, you know, brushing off dust and dirt and whatever. And I'm looking at some of these folders. Well, I picked one up and it says consultant report, 1983. So this is 10 years before I went there and about 12 years or so from that moment. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I opened it, I started reading through this thing. So it turns out that, that you know, 12 years before, they'd brought a consultant in to take a look at ministry and whatnot. And so among the findings, this gentleman is saying, uh, the demographic shift from, uh, you know, white, blue collar to Hispanic, whatever, whatever, is, is picking up pace. Indications are that in a very short period of time, this community will be a Hispanic community. And, you know, as you read further, it, it gets toward the end and it gets to recommendations. And it says, uh, it's the opinion of this consultant that, that this, this church has outlived its ability to minister in the current community. I recommend a relocation to a newly developing area in southeast Phoenix called Awatuki. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was like, it was the coolest thing to feel like, wow. We actually got one thing right. It seemed like God had been prompting this church to, to be there for years. And, you know, uh, it was one of those moments when I felt like, wow, we've, we've really tapped into the heart of God here. 
with this one thing. And, and it, you know, it proved to be a perfect location for this church. So, you know, the, the prayer, the discernment, the, the spiritual guidance, the hand of the Lord, that stuff is a very, very big deal. And not only because of the reality of it, but imagine, imagine when I was able to take that consultant report back to our people. I mean, they thought, wow, you know, this, this really is a God thing that we're a part of. And we didn't even know it. You know, we, we thought we were just sort of stumbling around trying to make halfway intelligent decisions as best we could. And the whole time, you know, God has been guiding this thing. But the this, this self-assessment piece, the ownership of reality is, is the huge piece. So if you can be in a situation where Presbytery covers that ground in advance, great. Uh, but if not, as a transitional pastor, that's one of the things you'd want to do. Uh, then moving into developing a vision for the future. Uh, and, you know, what we like to encourage is that the transitional pastors couple these concepts with our Go Center training. Uh, we have a, a training seminar in revitalization called Geo One that ties in with this idea of, of discerning vision and building a strategy for the future. So, um, you know, we'd like to have our transitional pastors bringing that tool into the church. Uh, and then um, phase three, vitalization. All right, aligning perception, vision, strategy, structure, people. That's a whole lot of categories. But here's what we're shooting for. The idea of, align, of, of aligning perception, that's the assessment process. We want to make sure that what, what church leaders are perceiving in their churches is reality. The truth is, most church leaders see their churches as being somewhat more healthy than they actually are. So by bringing this self-assessment process into the mix, they have an opportunity to recalibrate. And it's not done in a judgmental way. You know, it's not like, hey, I've taken a look at you and here's what I see. To which they say, oh, you're not seeing it correctly. It's like, no, here's some tools. You take a look and tell me what you see. You know, we have that piece built in, uh, a, a slice of it built in, to our revitalization seminar and every single time that we do this exercise we find church leaders being a bit surprised that oh gosh I thought we were this and we're really that I just had this you know last Saturday I was in uh, central Washington state with a small church they had that exact thing you know and probably eight or ten of their people over the course of the rest of Saturday and Sunday came to me and made some comment like, hey, you know, that life cycle thing was really interesting. 
uh, I would have never thought that we were like on the backside of a life cycle. So, and we'll look at life cycle in a moment. So, aligning perception is about getting reality on the table. Uh, aligning vision is about making sure our vision for ourselves is in line with God's vision. And uh, we simply summarize God's vision as being the Great Commission. God has a vision of a church that goes and makes disciples. So that's where we like to start uh, working with churches, is that you're developing a Great Commission-centric vision. Uh, strategy alignment is about making sure that all of the things that we're doing as a church are in alignment with that vision. Same with structure. Structure has got to be in alignment with the strategy and the vision. And finally, people. Uh, we need to get people in alignment uh, with this vision, the strategy, the structure. Because if the people, you know, the, the, the King James Version says, uh, without a vision, the people will perish. But if you flip that around, it's still true. Without the people, the vision will perish. Okay, so we want to make sure that our people are in alignment with that, uh, with that vision. Now, with those things beginning to be in place, that's when we feel like it's time for the church to seriously start thinking about the pastoral search. You know, we'd like to get these things in place to some degree. Uh, you know, certainly the aligning of perception the aligning of vision and the beginning development of strategy and structure. You know, we want these things in motion. Then you can start talking about the pastoral search. Okay? Any questions about that? That was kind of a lot of, a lot of stuff. Um, so, uh, say about the self-assessment piece. Yeah. You're talking about your Avatuka yeah. uh, church. Yeah. Uh, it sounded like they didn't want to do the self-assessment. They wanted you to do it. And so then you and your wife went driving around. And yeah, but you have to understand. Asia. Yeah, you have to understand that I didn't know any of this stuff yet. Yeah, right. I was, I was out of a church planting background where as a planter, you tended to bring a sense of vision and strategy. And you began to mobilize people around that vision and strategy you know but in this case you know i had never done i had never worked with a pre-existing congregation i had been involved in starting two churches from scratch um, and i had been recruited as a planter so i went into that situation with no revitalization experience and lots of church planter experience. So I treated it like a church plant until I would bump into things that just weren't consistent. Then I'd have to back up and retool. But even then, one of the things I did with this group was, um, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know how to marry an almost dead church of 13 with the prospect of a new sort of version of that church reaching a community. So during that seven months of waiting for a place to meet, 
I operated in two separate spheres. So I, I gave myself to being the pastor of 13 people. So I did a Sunday morning sermon and I did a Wednesday night Bible study and we had meetings here and there and, you know, social things and whatnot. But all of my other ministry time, I spent out in, in the new Target community doing the things that church planters do. And so I'm amassing this list of contacts waiting to get a place to meet. And when that finally happened, um, that's when I brought those two worlds together. But, you know, prior to that moment, like the group of 13 had, had no real understanding of what I was doing. Uh, and they were very suspicious of the fact that, like, I was never at the storefront, like office hours. You know, this was pre pre-laptops and pre-cell phones and that kind of stuff. So if you wanted to talk to the pastor, you called the church. Well, they called the church and the voicemail would pick up. Why? Because I'm down in the community. And so, you know, they, they didn't understand what I was doing, why I was doing it. And, uh, but, you know, the, the fateful morning when we, when we finally reached that first Sunday in at Centennial Middle School. It was classic what happened. We, uh, the, all 13 of them were there for that first Sunday, plus my wife and myself. So we had 15 adults. We had 10 children between us, four of whom were mine, okay? So we get there, we set up, and uh, you know, we're just getting used to the place. You know, we're meeting in the cafetorium. We're trying to figure out how we want to set up these little benches, where the kids' areas should be, how to, where to put the signage, and, you know, how do we get these b middle school bathrooms clean enough to be presentable, you know. So it's about 10 minutes or so before the start time, and... Uh, we gathered at the front, and I, I said to them, I said, listen, I don't know if anyone outside of our little group will show up this morning. I said, I've been meeting people. I've been explaining about a church relocating to this area, opening Sunday. Uh, I've sent out personal invitations. I've made phone calls to this, this contact list I've put together. Uh, we sent one sort of generic mail piece out, you know, dear neighbor, uh, we're bringing, we're relocating a church from North Phoenix to Ahwatukee. These are the things that we think are important. Uh, you know, if, uh, if this sounds like something you might be interested in, join us some Sunday soon. You know, it was very generic, low key. I mean, I, I ran the thing off on a photocopier. It, there was no four-color brochure or anything, you know. So um, I just said, look, if nobody comes, don't sweat it. We'll just have our service among ourselves, and we'll do this again next week and the next week and the next week. Somewhere along the line, I believe we'll begin to see God bringing people in. So we 
we break out of our little group after a short prayer and everyone goes to his or her station. So a minute later, Kelvin, who's out in the foyer, comes running into the cafetorium and he says, a car just pulled up. So the, the whole group runs to the foyer and they're all, they're all peeping through the window watching this unfold. Well, by the time the, you know, all was said and done, we had 27 newcomers day one. Again, hand of God. And uh, that group of 13, I mean, they were in shock. It was like, what just happened? And, you know, that day, the day after, you know, they're calling me like, Ken, I've never seen anything like that. What is going on? What have you been doing? Well, I've been doing this, that, and the other thing. Well, what could I be doing? Is there something I could help with? You know, I had been begging for this kind of help and not getting it. But when they finally saw, because, I, see, I think what, well, later, much later, in a panel discussion one time, at a, I had a training event for other churches in Phoenix. And I brought in some of our original 13 to be on a panel. And uh, one, of the, one of the questions was, well, when Ken first showed up, what were you guys hoping for? And Kelvin, same guy, great guy, Kelvin says, well, he said, we had a real disconnect at first because he said, Ken was this super intense, highly motivated, energetic guy that was talking crazy thoughts about reaching hundreds of people with the gospel. And he said, all we wanted was the same guy in the pulpit every Sunday. <laughs> and, but, you know, that, that, that's one Sunday. I mean, man, it just blew everything up. And about four or five weeks later, I did a little um, kind of an invitation at the end of a service and five people came forward to receive Christ. And we had a baptism service not long after to baptize those five people. Well, by that time, that, that group of 13, I mean, they were just, they were just so stunned. Like, we didn't know this could happen. And, you know, like I said, I, I, by the time I left, it's about 350. And, and, you know, that really doesn't, capture the whole dynamic of the growth because, see, the area that we were in had two primary employers, uh, Motorola and Intel. And the classic thing with those two companies were, was that uh, like 30-something people would roll into town and do like two or three years and then they'd be gone and they'd be going to the the operation in Germany or Venezuela or somewhere and so you know our attendance kept going up uh, steadily to about that 350 mark but there was probably a thousand people <laughs> in and out you know and also by about the fourth year I was starting to moonlight 
as a trainer and consultant. And you know, my my elder board when this started first happening, you know, their their we their deal was, you know, can we we're recognizing that that this is God's calling in your life. So we want to support that and we want to encourage it. So, you know, you go do whatever you need to do Monday through Saturday. As long as you can guarantee us a happening Sunday and a focus on leadership development. That was their deal. You keep Sunday happening and you keep developing leaders and whatever else you want to do. God bless you. It was really fun and it was cool and they loved it. You know, I mean, they felt that, gosh, we're having a part in this other ministry. But the truth is, after a while, it got to a point where the church needed uh, uh, a pastor that was actually there. <laughs> you know? So, you know, when when the church was smaller and the consultation thing was smaller, they could coexist. But both of them were growing and it got to a point where I kind of realized when, one day I'm in my office figuring out my travel schedule and I realized that the next month I was going to be gone 18 days. And I thought, this is not right. This is, this is over the top. So my wife and I kind of knew we've got to decide. You can either be a local church pastor or you can do this other thing, but you can't do both. So we kind of kind of knew where that die was already cast. But then when we got with the elders and they said, no, Ken, you can't, you can't, you can't stop what you're doing with lots and lots of churches to just be here at our church. However, we need a full-time pastor. <laughs> so we parted ways. All righty. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we take a yeah, short... A yeah, question. go ahead. I'm just going to show my ignorance to the process. Okay. But from in just thinking of transitional ministry, is it is it normal that this shows you the kind of churches I've been around? Is it normal that um, people are willing? I'm assuming if you were in North Phoenix, that's where people lived, and then you took them to South East Phoenix, it looked like. Is it normal for churches to be willing to relocate that way, so far away from where their base is? No, it's not normal, and it's quite. I'm just curious how that works, you know. Well, see, I I would not have recommended that. See, when I when I first heard, when uh, when they first told me, yeah, you know, we've got three acres of land and two buildings, mm -hmm. and this and that, but we're going to leave that. Uh, my, yeah, my thought was, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I've been on the other side of this. I've been in these church plants starting out with no facility. And I know, I know how difficult that is. And you're going to walk away from a facility that you have. And so and they were saying, well, yeah, you know, it, it's we're, we're just not able to connect with this community. So, you know, that decision's made, Ken. We've already leased the building out, yada, yada, yada. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but that lease is going to expire, right? <laughs> you know, and so I said, look, hold, just time out. Wait till I get there. Let me take a close look at this. And so one of the first things I did was, uh, you know, I go over to the community and I, I drove 
you know, up and down, up and down, seeing who, who am I seeing on the street? What am I hearing? Uh, and then after, after kind of canvassing the whole place, uh, I went uh, later, I parked and I started walking it. Well, every person I saw was Hispanic. The only language I heard was Spanish. You know, a car would drive by with the radio on, and I'm hearing mariachi and, you know, Caribbean, Latin, you know, Latin music. And, you know, I met the people that were the pastor and the, the people that were at the church. And, I mean, they were, they were growing hand over fist, people coming to Christ like crazy. And I just thought, man... We, we, can't, we can't put our tired Caucasian thing back in here. You know, nobody wins. So, I mean, I was very reluctant. But here, here's it's an interesting point that, you, that you're, you're making. Like, this to me was not the obvious thing to do. It was not the place to start. But the place we, we selected... Uh, None of the 13 lived in that area. Wow. And they were still willing, though. Yeah, I mean, they, they had kind of already been there, done that mentally. One guy ended up moving into the area. What was their commute time? Pardon? What was their commute time? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. The commute time was anywhere from, let's say, 20 to 25 on the short end up to about 40 minutes or so. Were they already commuting to go to the no. church? No, they were, they were, you know, the little storefront, actually, the, the location was selected based on its proximity to their homes. Okay, but see, here's what happened. This, this is what I, I started to learn in the process, is that when people are really, when they get it, when they're inspired, they will, they will sacrifice. So, like, there was... Well, I'll, I'll, let me show you how this worked. Uh, there was one couple. All right, there was an intersection. All right, here's an intersection. Over here is the church building. And Caddy Corner is a little house that was the parsonage of the church. This is the old, the old property. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, that previous pastor that ended up leaving his wife and etc. When he became pastor of the church, he didn't want the parsonage. He wanted to have his own place. And they saw that as a great idea because they sold the parsonage. All right. Who bought the parsonage? The eldest couple of the 13. So they're living in this house, yeah. see. Now, after I had been on, uh, you know, moved out there, after I'd been there a couple weeks or so, um, one of the other people pulls me aside one day, say, hey, I got something I need to share with you. Okay. He says, uh, you know, Ron and Marge, you know, they live in that house that used to be the parsonage. I said, yeah, I've, I've heard that story. He said, well, what they want to see happen is they want to see 
us go back into this building. You know, their vision is when the new pastor comes, we'll get back into the building, we'll resurrect, you know, past-oriented, we'll resurrect the former history of the church, and, and we'll do right by this community like we failed to do before. That was their vision. Okay? So as soon as I heard about this, uh, and I mean, this is, this is not just, gee, I wish we could go back to the old. This is like, we want, we want to continue to live caddy corner from our church. So I went over, I called Ron, and I said, hey, uh, I'd like to get with you in March. Got some things I want to talk with you about. So I went over to see him on a Friday morning. And uh, I said, okay. I said, uh, you guys have been here the longest in this church, what do I need to know? Fill me in on your perspective, all the things that have gone down. And, you know, give me a little travel log through the history of the church from your point of view. And I mean, they went back and they talked through, and this happened and that happened, and this was wonderful, and this was so sad, and you know, Marge is crying, and every once in a while, Ron would cry, and. Uh, you know, good leaders, bad leaders, great decisions, terrible decisions. You know, typical history of a church, right? So, about two and a half hours into this, they were obviously kind of done. So, I said, okay. Um, I said, let me, uh, let me explain something, and let me just be crystal clear. I said, I really appreciate what you shared with me. I understand your desire to see the church back in this. I mean, it was really picturesque because we're sitting in their living room with this picture window behind me. They're on the sofa. I'm here, and they can see the church through the glass, you know. And I said, I, said, I understand your affection for this location. I said, but the truth is, Things have changed. And I said, I cannot in good conscience let you live one more second in the false hope that we will ever come back to this building. Well, Marge kind of like sighed with this almost like she's going to physically collapse. But at the same time, it was kind of like Thank goodness, finally somebody's giving me the real stuff, you know. So we kind of got past that moment. And this was a very strategic choice on my part. I said, listen, I said, I really believe it's best for people to attend the church close to home. So if after we relocate, if you decide to leave us, you hear that? Leave us. Like, I'm now the insider, okay? If you decide to leave us and find a church close by, I would completely get that. However, we really need your help. To get this thing off the ground, we need all hands on deck. And I'd like for you to consider making this drive for as long as it takes for us to be 
rechartered. You see, in this denomination, when a church fell below 15 members, you forfeited your, your charter, and the, the district took over governance. See, I was actually recruited by the district. I wasn't really called by that church. I was more or less imposed on that church. Okay? So I said, if you would, if you would commit to staying with us long enough that we would be rechartered, I said, that would be an indication that we were back on our feet. And I think if you chose to leave then, you would leave feeling really good about where we are as a church and what your contribution had been. So he says, well, um, I think we could do that. So for 18 months, they make the drive. He's an usher. She's a Sunday school teacher. Faithful tithers. 18 months later, we're having Charter Sunday. We're receiving 13, uh, we're receiving 38 charter members. We're, uh, we're bringing in three elders and three deacons. I'm being formally installed as the official pastor. District superintendent is there. And we had like 140 people in attendance. So it was a really, we're meeting at, middle, at the middle school. It was, it, was a, it was a great morning. So after the service, I'm packing up my stuff. Uh, I was a musician prior to getting into ministry. And my first ministries were in music. So I was actually the worship leader and the pastor in those days. So I'm packing up my keyboard rig. And I look up and Ron is walking across the room toward me. Tears streaming down his face. So I stood up and he, I mean, he just pinned me with this big bear hug. Lifts me off the ground. He said, Ken... He said, I just never thought I'd, I'd have the privilege of seeing anything like this. And that was his last Sunday. You know, they, they, they lived up to that commitment. And then later, then that, but that was it. And they would come back on like anniversary Sundays. We had a couple of things happen over the years that I would call on him. Like, hey, Ron, I've been asked to... Uh, visit with this lady in a nursing home that's over near your house. And I said, now I can go once or twice, but I can't do this on a regular basis. But she's part of our denomination. Uh, would you and Marge be willing to go with me? And he says, well, Ken, yeah. He said, we'll not only go with you. He said, we'll go instead of you. There's no need for you to come way over here. We'll take care of this. You know, <laughs> So, that, you know, it was spectacular. You know, but that's what I'm saying. These were high-quality Christian people, but they, they just weren't, they weren't like startup, risk-taking, pioneer-type people. Okay, so it's kind of like I had to do all the risk-taking, wild, crazy stuff. They did all the steady, stable stuff, and somehow or other, it worked, you know. 
Yeah, it was great. And really, uh, we only had one couple out of that. It was six couples and one single guy in that group of 13. We only had one. The, the, the youngest couple came under the influence of a, a family that came into the church. The, the woman, the wife of this family was a very staunch Kenneth Copeland devotee. And she and I didn't hit it off too well on a few levels. And uh, it kind of the, the star that broke the camel's back, she, uh, we started hosting this uh, leadership development program. And the deal was in the, in the, in the new church. Okay, the new yeah. And, and the, the deal was that we're now doing this leadership development class over so many months. And anyone is welcome to take the class. But if you have designs on ever serving in an officer role in this, in this church, uh, one of the prerequisites is going to be that you've been through this leadership class. So at some point I see her, she signed up for that class. So I called her and I said, hey, uh, I see you've signed up for leadership development. She said, yeah. And I said, could you tell me what you're, what you're thinking? What's, uh, what's motivating you to take this class? And she said, well, I'd like to be an elder in the church one day. And you've said that this is a prerequisite. And I said, okay, listen. I said, uh, you're welcome to take the class, but I need to let you know yeah, you're not going to be an elder in this church. I said, you, you are theologically uh, way off center from who we are as a church. And so, again, you're welcome to take the class, but don't take this class because you think you're ever going to be an elder here. Because unless some things change dramatically in your theological perspective, that's just not going to happen. And she says, well, I thought you said women could be leaders in this church. I said, this, I'm not telling you this because you're a woman. <laughs> I'm telling you this because your theology is suspect. <laughs> you know? Well, that didn't sit too well, let's say. So next thing you know, uh, accusations about me doing this and that, including like grabbing money out of the offering bags is floating around. And we trace the origin of these theories to her. So I called her again. <laughs> I said, hey, listen, uh, some things have come to my attention. And uh, what's been reported is that you were the source for these outlandish accusations. So, you know, if this is not you, just say so. I'll take your word for it. But if this is you, I'd like to know what on earth basis you have for these claims, which she vehemently denied. But the moment she got off the phone, she called the person that she had told these things to, which was like waving an I'm guilty flag. But at that point, I think just to save face or something, they left the church. And this, this young couple, the youngest of the 13, they had fallen under her influence. 
So when she left, they left with her. But that was the only negative, you know, departure we had.